You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we were looking together at chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, and we'll be reading together verses 27 through 30. You'll find this on page 920 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 11, and verses 27 through 30. Hear the word of God. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Well, Paul and Barnabas have been busy at work, discipling the believers in Antioch. We read last time that for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Because true discipleship takes time and effort and a great deal of patience. There are so many things, as we noted last time, to learn and so many things to unlearn. But he who is sincere, who is willing to obey, will know the truth. And Jesus says the truth will set you free. And the key is God's truth. Holy Scripture. The Spirit uses the Bible to sanctify and to free And for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas were teaching and training the believers in Antioch in the Holy Scriptures of God. And it was there that they were first called Christians. And that designation Christian, I think, underscores the gospel equality that exists among all believers. We're followers of Christ. That's what binds us together as believers. We're united to Christ our King. And of course, with that designation should go the example of a godly life. To that end, Paul and Barnabas labored constantly among those in Antioch. And from their conduct, people should have known that they belonged to Christ. As Christians, called Christians, our center, guide, pattern, and goal should be Christ. So if you, let me ask you, if you, living the way that you do right now, suddenly are plopped in the midst of a pagan nation where you don't know the language, would they notice something different about you? Would they perceive something otherworldly 
or something countercultural that they might say, not sure what it is, but they're different. And they'd come to know that you're a Christian. The believers in Antioch identified specifically with the name of Christ, and the fact is they were different. Their habits and their practices were distinct. And it's not surprising because the life of a Christian is fueled by the Holy Spirit and it's governed by the Word of God. And therefore, we don't march to the beat of this fallen, sin-cursed world. Being born from above, we live as if we're citizens of heaven, not of earth. There's something unique about the Christian. So let's not slip into thinking that the name Christian is just another designation. It's not a mere label to distinguish us as belonging to some other group. Christian is meant to identify who we are and what we believe and how we live. In baptism, we give up our names to Christ and he bestows his name upon us. It's a marriage, so to speak, and he takes us as his bride, and everything we do reflects upon him. And it's a high privilege to bear his name, and it comes with great responsibilities. We're endowed with a new nature, and he gives us a new status, and we have family rights and privileges, and those who bear this name are obliged to honor his majesty. So we do that through things like honesty. Hard work, unity, love, and abiding in his word. And God says to us in Isaiah 43, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, everyone who is called by my name. Well, the fruit of Paul and Barnabas' labors is seen in their selfless generosity The prophet Agabus, as we read, predicted this great famine that would deprive the world of food. And of course, like all true prophets, he didn't say this on his own authority. What he foretold was by the Spirit. It was the Spirit of prophecy. And throughout the whole Roman Empire, there would be a shortage of food. And Luke is quick to tell us that this crisis actually happened as foretold. It was during the reign of Claudius Caesar, who ruled for 10 years from AD 41 to 51. It happened. And in response, the disciples, according to their abilities, sent relief to the Judean brethren. And their financial support was sent through the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And presumably, this would enable the disciples there to store up supplies in anticipation of the famine. It was generous. And it was considerate. It was a sincere act of love for the brethren. And it was a clear demonstration of the communion of saints, one of the basic articles of our faith. We believe in the communion of saints. None of the poor should be neglected, but especially the brethren. Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the believers in Antioch sends this relief to the believers in Judea. And when the Jews became Christians of that day, it often meant poverty and hardship. Cut off from their family, cut off from public charity, Jewish Christians could die in the famine. So the early Christians 
They sent relief. They not only talked a good game, but they actually lived it. Remember what John said? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the need is made known, the collection is taken up, and the resources are sent. And so important was this task that they sent it by none other than Barnabas and Saul. And I'm confident that when they arrived with this relief, they said something like this. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to you. For if the Gentiles have come to share in your spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to you in material blessings. So we see here today that true faith expresses itself in part by generous brotherly love. And it's a love that crosses ethnic boundaries like that of Jew and Gentile. It's a kind of cross-cultural kindness and generosity that doesn't go unnoticed. Many of you have heard of Tertullian, one of the church fathers. He was writing and he's, he's claiming that the pagans of his day saw the Christians and this is what the pagans said. Look how they love one another. <laughs> totally unique. Otherworldly. So faith True, justifying faith is the catalyst for love and good works. It's because those people in Antioch were justified by faith that they were generous. And this is what Pastor Pilon read earlier. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. True saving faith cannot exist apart from good works or what we might call obedience. Because a faith without obedience is dead faith. It can't justify anyone. Paul says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. You can have the faith to perform a miracle to have Mount Kilimanjaro thrown into the sea. You can watch it happen. But if you don't have love, it's worthless. We are justified by faith alone, but it is never by a faith that is alone. Did you get that? We're justified by faith alone, but it's never by a faith that is alone. Hence, faith in Christ is nothing as long as it stays only in the head. I had a, a friend in seminary, a fellow student, and this young man was brilliant. He was well-read. Most of us were intimidated by his intellect. But after getting to know him, I discovered that he was proud, cold, cynical. 
And so it wasn't really surprising that two or three years later, we learned that he had been run out of his first church. Where did he go? He came back to seminary to get an advanced degree. He was much more humble when he came back, I mind you. But he had what we call dead orthodoxy. The doctrines that he embraced had made no impact upon his life. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. There is in this universe no theologian more orthodox than the devil. That's true. He knows Jesus is the Christ. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that he's the only mediator between God and men and that he died to atone for our sins. Totally orthodox. He believes it, he knows it, but he hates Jesus for it. And he has no love for Christ, and he despises Christ. A true believer is one who not only knows Jesus, but loves him. Because the knowledge of Christ filters through the mind, takes root in the heart, and bears fruit in the life. You know, James, the apostle, was fighting for the cause of practical Christianity, for faith and works. Let me give you an illustration. A sick person believes, when he gets discharged from the doctor's office, he believes that if he takes a certain medicine, it's going to make him get well. He believes that. But he goes home and he refuses to take the medicine. Now, that kind of faith is not going to do him any good. To be healed, he has to act. He must not only agree that the medicine is good, he takes it. And it's no different in the spiritual realm. You not only believe that Jesus is the Christ, you trust him. You take him at his word. You ask yourself, do I deny myself? Do I love my brethren? Do I give sacrificially? Do I come and submit myself to the word of God? Because you see, the mind is the gateway to the heart. Truth enters the mind, but it must take root in the heart. If it sticks in the mind and it goes no further, then it's no more than devil's faith. That was my friend. Anyone with mere head knowledge of the truth can do no better than Satan. Only if it takes root in the heart will it begin to transform the believer's life. His knowledge of Christ and his love for the Lord will motivate him to do good works. I see that happening in our congregation. I see good works, and it makes me rejoice. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. The believers in Antioch supported the Judean Christians as an expression of true faith. Every believer there gave according to his ability, and some gave more and some gave less. That's true, but theirs was a working faith. It wasn't a dead faith. It was a living faith, and they were justified by it. So this truth of justification is one of the most important doctrines regarding salvation. 
So important is the truth of justification by faith as some have called it the heart of the gospel. Martin Luther, you probably have heard this before. He said justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. It is, as another theologian calls it, the hinge and pillar of Christianity. Our salvation depends on it. To make a mistake about this truth is extremely dangerous. It's fatal. Any builder knows that a stable foundation or a stable building must have a good foundation. Any defect whatsoever in the foundation could lead to an eventual collapse. The Tower of Pisa, I've never seen it. I've seen pictures of it in Italy. It leans because it's built upon an unstable foundation. And the same principle holds with regard to salvation. The truth of justification is the foundation of our faith. Only those who are justified truly love the brethren because the Holy Spirit dwells in them. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. We have been justified by faith and God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Well, of course, the word justification is taken from the courts of law where a person is arraigned. As a result of the trial, he is either openly acquitted or he is publicly convicted. He's either declared innocent or if he's found guilty, he's sentenced. And in like fashion, on that final day, all people will either be acquitted or condemned. That's it. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And of course, that poses a seemingly insurmountable problem for sinners like me, like you. Due to original sin and actual sins, we are corrupt and guilty before a holy God. Our very nature is polluted with the sin that we inherited from Adam. In him, we're born guilty and corrupt. So we're told that we're already condemned. And you add to that all of the actual sins that we pile up in life, and we are in a heap of trouble. Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath culpable from conception. Pastor Pilon read this morning from Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now we love all the little children here. We give God thanks for these blessings. And Jesus loved them and he welcomed them during his earthly ministry. But you must know that these little children are cute little bundles of sin. The Bible says they have venom like the venom of serpents. That's why parenting is so difficult and it's so important. 
Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So from the very start, before we draw our first breath, we're sinners. We have filth to be covered, and we have a burden to be eased, and we have a debt to be canceled. Thomas Manton says, if it be not pardoned, the judge will give us over to the jailer. And the jailer cast us into prison till we have paid the very last penny. And that day of reckoning, the day of payment, may come far sooner than many of us think. It's the day of death. Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. And it's no wonder then that Jesus came preaching and the first thing he mentioned was repentance. He took sin seriously. The Bible takes sin seriously. We should take sin seriously. You will not hear that very often, if at all, from many modern pulpits. Sadly, they treat sin lightly because they don't take God seriously. And yet sin is so exceedingly sinful because it insults and it offends a holy God. That's sin. That's what makes his anger rise, and that's what makes his wrath burn, and that's what makes his judgment rain down. And he's given us some historical illustrations of that. Sodom and Gomorrah, just to name one, illustrates the severity of God's judgment against sin. This is what Jude says, reflecting upon that awesome historical episode. He writes, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The penalty of sin is intolerable. And the punishment of sin is unavoidable. You know, in Revelation 6, John writes about the sinners of earth who hide themselves calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? We can't even stand a toothache. We think that a toothache is unbearable. How could any of us endure eternal wrath? Unless sin is forgiven, then we shall share the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And from the condemnation at the very last day, there is no escape apart from divine mercy. Because God cannot tolerate sin. He is of purer eyes than to even look upon evil. And that's why the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And yet there are so many who live and who die with a false sense of security because I believe they have low thoughts of his holiness. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why the good news is such good news. The good news is that in Christ, God extends mercy and he justifies the believing sinner. 
Paul says in Romans 3, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So on the basis of what Jesus accomplished, we can stand before the throne of God. How does that happen? Well, God imputes to the true believer the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's a theological way of explaining it. The word impute, you may have heard it before. It simply means to credit to the account or to reckon to the account. It's a word taken from the world of banking. It has to do with debits and credits. For example, if I were to deposit $1,000 into my daughter's bank account, that money is imputed to her. It's credited to her account. And it belongs to her. And in the same way, God is willing, that's grace right there. He's willing to impute this righteousness of Christ to the believer. It's credited to our account as if we did it. As if it really belonged to us. By his perfect life, Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law, every single one of them. And by his sacrificial death, he satisfied all the demands of justice. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satisfied. Kuiper says he was, he was where a man deserved to be, and all the waves and billows of the divine wrath against man's sin rolled over his head and crushed his soul, and Jesus says it's finished. Neither law nor justice can stipulate anything more. All of our sins have been dealt with. There can be no double jeopardy, and the merit of his obedience and death is credited to the believer. And so the righteousness of his active obedience in his life and the righteousness of his passive obedience in his death are given to us. And that's how a thrice holy God declares us righteous according to law. Justly. Doesn't John say God is not only faithful, but he is just to cleanse you and to forgive you. So the Christian is free from his liability for breaking God's commands. John describes Jesus as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's the blood of Christ, the cleansing power of his blood. And we're reconciled to God the Father and adopted into his family. Isn't that incredible? Does it ever get old? So perfect is his work that we're looked upon by God as blameless. He forgives our sin. He takes away our guilt. He accepts us as righteous in his sight. And there's no better news for sinners. It's like music to the ears. David in Psalm 32, I think, sums it up well. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. The moment we trust in Christ, we're fully and forever justified. The guilt is washed away. The dominion of sin is broken. 
were instantly translated from the kingdom of deep darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, were taken out of the family of Satan and adopted into God's family. Can you think of it? He adopts the children of the devil. That's what he does. We can stand before the Father's just and holy presence without fear and so fully and so really have our sins been blotted out. He treats us as innocent. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. Doesn't matter. Anyone who truly relies upon Jesus for salvation is justified. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. Rather, it's something God delights to bestow because we're justified by his grace as a gift. And he doesn't justify us because we're worthy. He does it to make us worthy. Out of love and mercy from the depths of eternity, he planned to do it. And he decided to justify us in a way that would in no way compromise his justice. And this justification will eventually and inevitably be crowned with glory. Isn't that what he says in Romans 8? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the point I'm making is simply this. That what motivated the believers in Antioch to be generous was their faith in Christ. A working faith. It expresses itself in obedience. And it's so easy to get mixed up on this. There are those of what we call the social gospel who say, by works, you're justified. No faith in the blood of Christ. They don't even believe he's divine. I've lived a good life. I've served the poor. I've tried my best. And these people think that they'll gain a place in heaven by their morality. And it's simply a DIY religion, a do-it-yourself religion. I want you to think of a man who's been found guilty of a capital crime and he's been sentenced to death. He is in prison on death row and he's awaiting his execution. A friend comes along and calls out to him, hey, I have good news for you. Eagerly, the condemned man says, what is it? And the answer that he's given, be good. There's not a shred of good news in that. That's social gospel. Paul says a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But there are others who mix it up on this, who we call antinomians. And they'll claim, by faith, you're justified, which is orthodox. But they will claim that works are unnecessary. They may do good works, they can deem good works important, but they're unnecessary. I made a decision 10 years ago, and that has got me covered. I can live however I please. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then there is the Roman Catholic view, which is this, by faith, we're led to do good works, 
by which we're justified. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They believe in his cross and his atoning blood and the Holy Spirit. They're very orthodox in those areas. We appreciate that. But the problem is, they say this, our faith in Christ compels us to do good works by which we're justified. And in the end, then, it's a combination of faith and works that gives them right standing. So we come to what we believe is the biblical view that by faith we're justified, which gives rise to good works. We have nothing to do with it. Forgiveness and acceptance is entirely free. God so loved hell-deserving sinners that he gave us the son of his eternal love. And out of a deep sense of gratitude, we strive to obey the word of the Lord. And our faith is expressed in works of gratitude. That's what, the inspi- that's what inspired the Christians of Antioch. And my prayer is that the Spirit will reveal to us, if it has not already, the glory of these truths. You may be freely forgiven. You may be completely cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And a true realization of that will have a powerful impact upon your life. I'm going to close with a story to illustrate that truth. Consider this story of Alan Ronan's mother. She was a very bright woman from New York. She had worked as an editor for a publishing company, and she even wrote children's books. Alan gave me permission to say this, by the way. Her religious views were diverse all over the map, and I'm told that she became heavily involved in the occult and became a witch. She was in the habit of casting spells on people. And in her final years, she was living just down the road at the Elms Nursing Home, and she had become a bitter, resentful woman. She was so mean that when the attendants helped her dress, she'd kick them. And when they tried to help her wash, she would bite them. She was a tough nut, to say the least. Well, Alan and some other Christians held weekly worship services at the Elms, thankfully. And one Sunday, as a man was speaking on scripture, Alan's mother, who was in a wheelchair and could not walk, suddenly stood up, raised her hand, and said, God help me. (laughs) That ended the sermon, and it ended the service. They all came over and started talking to her, and the next day, Alan visited his mother and explained to her Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Though her dementia had advanced on that day, she seemed perfectly lucid as he expounded the text. And she was converted. How do we know? Because the change in her disposition was noticeable. (laughs) She became surprisingly pleasant. No more biting, no more kicking. And thus, at the age of 92... This tough old New Yorker was plucked from the fire, justified by faith, 
and her life was transformed. And all we can say is amazing grace. How sweet it is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the marvelous way that you justify sinners. None of us deserve it. All of us are hell-deserving. And yet, out of love and mercy, you've extended this to us. And so for that, we give you thanks and praise and ask for the Spirit's help now as we sing in response to the truth of your salvific work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.